This is a podcast from the Queen City Podcast Network. How many times have you thought to yourself, I wish I could know more about, well, you fill in the blank. You've come to the right place. I am Chuck Jones, Executive Director of Commonwealth Charlotte and the host of the No More podcast. Each week, we'll help you know more about some of the challenges faced by low-income wage earners in Charlotte and nationwide, seen through the lens of organizations whose mission it is to address those challenges. So thank you for coming, and here we go. My guest this week is recognizable throughout Charlotte's nonprofit community and is someone I've gotten to know well over the past year. Sam Smith is executive director of Greenlight Fund Charlotte, an organization with a mission to partner with the local community to identify systemic barriers to economic mobility and invest in bringing proven models that are additive to the local ecosystem to help break down those barriers and address deep-rooted racial disparities, opening inclusive prosperity opportunities for children and families. That's a mouthful. We're going to talk about that. Prior to joining Greenlight Fund, Sam was director of Unite Charlotte, a program of the United Way focused on funding and growing emerging nonprofit organization. I love Sam's energy and enthusiasm and mostly his friendship. I always look forward to the conversations that we have, including today. So Sam, Welcome to the No More Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to I wanna, uh, ask you, but I didn't want to cut you off. Could you share that intro with me? That, I'm going to start using that. That's perfect. You nailed exactly what I do at well, Greenlight. Good. I'll, <laughs> I'll give you this copy when we leave. That's awesome. Hey, uh, so I want to talk more about uh, uh, how we met and got to know each other. But first, you know, yours is a really interesting life path. Sure. That brought you to Charlotte. Would you uh, share it with your list with our listeners? Sure, sure. And uh, and I'll be really, really brief. So I was born in Moravia, Liberia. Um, at the age of four, civil war started in my country, so my whole family was displaced. Um, my my father was fortunate to be in the states um, when the war started. Um, and my mom, my little sister, um, my older sister, my father, grandparents went to uh, other countries. Yeah. And then myself, my little sister, my mom, we went to other countries. I met my older sister when I was 10 years old. Um, well, we officially met face to face when we when we were talking wow. um, at the age of 10. And also at the age of 10 was when my dad sent for my sister and I to come to the States for um, a better quality of life and education, et cetera. Um, came to the States, grew up in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, we lived in the projects, in the Jeffries projects. Um, yeah. So there I went to my um, neighborhood elementary, middle, and in some way my neighborhood, my neighborhood high school. Um, I was fortunate to be in a program called the Horizon Upper Bound Program um, that kept me, I was in several programs. This Horizon Upper Bound Program kept me out of trouble. It also opened a path for me to college. Right. Um, but I was also in a program called CCYA, Cass Corridor Youth Association. And essentially what they did was um, um, at the end of the day, when we got out of elementary and middle school, um, they will have this van that will come through our community. And anybody who want to stay out of trouble um, can hop on the van. They will take you to this uh, recreation center. We'll stay there till about 7 to 8 o'clock, and then they will bring us back home. Um, and when they bring you back home, the goal is for you to go in the house and stay out of trouble. Um, but being in that program really um, opened my eyes to the importance of giving back. Um, a lot of the women who worked in that program um, you'll always hear them referring to why they do what they do. Yeah. 
and they yeah. always say, I am doing this because I'm giving back because someone else did this for my kid. Wow. Um, at the time, I didn't understand what that meant. It was giving back and social capital, all these big words that we know now. I didn't, I was maybe 11, 12 years old. Yeah. Um, I didn't understand what any of that meant, but it always resonated with me that no matter what I do in life, I always want to make it my mission to give a part of me to my community. And that's what I have brought. Yeah, so that's that's an interesting thing. I didn't think we would talk about this, but you you know you would have what uh, a lot of people would say would be adverse childhood experiences. It I is. mean, when you uh, grew up in a or, or were, were born in a, in a country that was in civil war and had to move internationally and and all of that, that is those uh, those childhood experiences that we deal with all the time, correct? That's right. That's how, right. How do you think that really did prepare you, not just in looking at the service that you would wanted to do, but in your in your understanding of what people go through that we work with? Yep. Um, one of the things that it that those experiences did, it's uh, one, uh, provide me the ability to learn how to trust. Um, because if you're moving through a different environment, you really don't know who to trust. Um, thinking about it at the age of four or five, um, in some cases when I was six years old, um, having to lean on to my mom, then my mom having to lean on to somebody else to support us. Yeah. Um, I can only imagine um, with children that maybe not even five, six, 10, 11 years old who are living in an underserved community who have a hard time trusting and they don't even know who to go to, who to turn to um, for basic needs, basic things that they need to survive. I mean, that's, that's, that's traumatic. And trust is something that is learned. Trust is something that it, is learned. I don't think that's it's right. natural, do you? That's right. It's not. It's I mean, not. And so you, sometimes you unfortunately do make some mistakes, trust the wrong people. But fortunately for you, you you trusted the right people. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And it was scary. I mean, it was a it was a again, being young, it's a risk on my part. <laughs> um, but it was scary. Right. Um, and even, you know, thinking about um, getting in that van, you have to have trust to get in that van because, again, you're getting in the van of. If, if this is your first time, you don't know who these folks are. Or if it's your hundredth time, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. Because when they drop you back off, you have two options. Go back into the projects and be a product of the environment or going in a house and hopefully you can live to see another day. And, oh, wow. And, and do that. And, and just experiencing that at the age of 14, 15 was was. Now that I look back at it, it was quite amazing to to be here with you sitting at this studio. Oh, I, I think it is, too. And you learned that, uh, and, and, and you said earlier that you did learn that as you watched people serve you, you realized that you wanted to give that back. Correct. That you wanted that to be a key component of your life. Is that how you ended up in Charlotte? Um, in some ways, um, I would say that's how I ended up being who I am in Charlotte. Mm -hmm. um, so I came in Charlotte. I came to Charlotte from um, I was recruited by our school to come here and run a career center. Um, but when I got here, um, at this point, I, I'm, I'm done with college. I'm done with my um, bachelor's and I'm done with my master's. And I was working 40 hours a week. But again, that always has resonated to me about giving back. So even though I was working 40 hours a week, um, it was also important to me to give at least 20 hours a week to my community. So I've been a, I've been a part of a bunch of community boards. I've been I've volunteered for a bunch of community organizations um, and not doing it um, because I want the recognition. I'm doing it because I was I'm genuinely passionate about helping back, help, helping my community, see my community grow. And at that point, when I moved here to Charlotte in 10 years, I kind of saw what's happening here in Charlotte now. And I wanted to be a part of that. Um, I wanted to be a part of that um, group that's trying to save people. Well, uh, save sounds really, really, 
part of that group that's trying to change your right. community for underserved, right? Well, you know, it's, folks, it, right? It's not a it's not a horrible word though, because some yeah. people some people are need need some saving tendencies, right? But others need just uh, assistance and need that's right. guidance and need someone to come along as mentors and support people. So that's right. You've done that a lot. You and I got to know each other about a year ago, right? That's right. Yeah, I remember the day we <laughs> met. I saw you a lot of times before I ever met you, and then and, right. and our good friend Amy always wanted us to meet, and we finally did. And, and I'm happy she connected us. I'm happy she connected us too. You know, I tell people all the time, you know, one of my best friends now is someone I haven't known that long. You know, as you get older, you can't make old friends anymore. You yep. just get too old to. But I always say, you know, one of my very best friends now is a guy I met a year ago and I yep. always tell him about you. So yep. um, thank you. And and I feel like our friendship has just been organic because one of the things about friends, um, especially at our age, when you meet people, you feel like it's forced. Um, but we have really just, we started texting and you say, hey, let's grab coffee. Then coffee led to lunch, then more coffee. And, and tea. And tea. You I forgot about the, the tea. That's you, right. You introduced me to the tea house. So yeah, we go that's there right, too. That's you right. know, so that's, that's a great spot. <laughs> it was organic. You know, it was, yeah. it was something that, uh, like, you know, we just, we seemed to share a whole lot of, uh, of our same ideals and, and work that we were uh, involved in. You know, right. you, uh, uh, you, when I did meet you, you were, were at uh, Unite Charlotte and you kind of uh, took over at Unite Charlotte when it was quite small. And you grew it into something with enormous impact in our community. So I just, as a member of the community, I want to thank you for the work that you thank did you. there. But what did you learn about Charlotte through the the people that the organizations that you interacted with served? What did you sure. learn unique about Charlotte? Sure. Um, before I answer that, um, I was with the United Way, and the United Charlotte program was what I ran. Correct. Um, so the United Charlotte program, um, oh, well, what did I learn? Um what I learned was there's a big gap in this community. Um, mm-hmm. Grassroots organizations, most specifically organizations that are led by people of color, mm-hmm. are drastically underfunded. Um, mm-hmm. And if you are not in the right social capital, you are typically forgotten about. Um, that's one of the things that I learned very, very quickly. There are, there are a lot of great program out there. There are a lot of great people doing good work out there that don't get the recognitions that they deserve, um, that don't get the funding that they deserve. Um, that they deserve. So when I um, got to the United Way, um, the program was a $250,000 program. It was serving just about anyone um, where the funding ranges from $5,000 to $25,000 or $5,000 um, $15,000. But one of the first things that I saw was if we want to be intentional, and United was going through this um, very um, um, systematic times where United was trying to figure out their bearings, lean a little bit more into the racial equity world. And one of the things that I quickly realized was if we wanted to really make a big statement and be bold in this community, we have to serve the people that are um, coming to us, asking us, give us fun and give us a chance so we can show you that we can play in the same ball field as your grass type organization. So the program was really created to lean into those folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I was doing that, again, one of the things that I learned is there's a lot of amazing people in the Charlotte community. There are. There are a lot of amazing programs and organizations that are truly making an impact. And a lot of these people are doing it out of passion. When you would talk to them and then I'll ask them, so who was your first funder? They said, well, I've been funding this thing on my own for four or five years. How? Yeah, they do. <laughs> right? So right. Uh, a lot of it is built out of passion. So there's a lot of great people out there that have gr- good heart 
that want to see change in our community. There are. Some of them are one-person organizations. That's right. Or one or two people. That's you right. Know? And, yeah. uh, and they're working in all different uh, strata of the, of the issues that we face. I mean, we have That's so right. many things. What are some of the – is there something that stands out to you that you remember specifically about any of those organizations? Because I really do yeah. value – that's one of the things that you've always been able to to give me is the insights into things that uh, – uh, situations that I don't always see. Anything stand out to you that you remember? Yeah. Um, so I can I can speak to I don't I'm sure they'll be happy if I say their name, but I can speak to several organizations Absolutely. that are that are near and dear to my heart. I would love here. Um, the one of the first ones is um, uh, Stiletto Boss University. They specifically work in Title One schools, um, and they are going to the school system and teaching these young women how to be entrepreneurs. Um, they're giving them the skills from legal to how to build your business to how to go and raise money for your business. And ultimately, they do a pitch competition where um, the, the if I'm not mistaken, it's top three runner, but I do know for sure they have that first place winner um, that, that they only receive um, funding to see their business come to life, but they also connect them to a lot of resources to see that business grow. So there are young women, young ladies that are in high school that have started their own nail business or started their own t-shirt business. Right. And that right there just blows my mind. That's what we need to teach black and brown kids, how to be leaders and how to be entrepreneurs on their own. Yeah, so that's just one. That's yeah, good. and you and I know that there's capital in, that's uh, right. in the terms of money, but yep. there's also this social capital that's so important. That's right. And it sounds like they're doing both. Any, who, doing who, both. who else? Tell me something else. Um, you always tell me these stories, <laughs> man, and I love it. Um, another one will be um, there's an organization on Betty's Four World Corridor called For the Struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, Alicia Brown is the executive director there. And essentially what they do, they have a um, array of different programs. One of the programs that really sticks, that really resonate with me a lot is their, um, uh, I would call the staying in place program where they are helping seniors um, not sell their homes or give in to gentrification. Um, they're actually helping seniors uh, refurbish their homes, uh, putting in a new refrigerator, putting in a new roof if it's needed. If it's a ramp that's needed at that senior home, they would do that. The goal is to keep these, these, these seniors in their homes and hopefully pass those homes down to their kids to increase generational wealth in this ever-growing, gentrified uh, community that we're living in. So that's just one program um, that they do. Um, the other program is they have a um, a uh, uh, a program where they're taking food to the seniors, but they're actually taking it to their home. So they're making food and they're knocking on doors, delivering these food to these seniors um, every day. That right there is a game changer. Um, I mean, the food piece is, is huge, but also going back to that uh, refurbishing and, and helping the seniors know their rights, know that they can stay in their home without having to give in to gentrification. Right. Absolutely. You know, we're going to make podcast hi- podcast history here because, Uh-oh. you know, <laughs> My Affordable Home is this new program that Commonwealth Charlotte has started, and we are looking for homeowners that we can help and come alongside. So there for the struggle, you and me, we just made a contact here <laughs> there you go. live in, in front of the microphones. Um, anybody else? I love that. Um, and then the, the 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 other one again. I can I can go on for days. There are a lot of programs, a lot of things, great things happening from a grassroots level um, in our community. Um, the other one that I'll go to is uh, Guardhouse. Um, I'm sure you know Jonathan Gardner very very yeah, well. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, they focus on placing black and brown kids. Oh, I'm sorry, not kids. These are adults, but black and brown college graduates, um, providing them internships um, within companies across our city. Um, one of their main um, target that they look for is company that are led by a person of color so that black student can have that experience and learn from that experience. Yeah. Um, so to me, that's that's amazing. I wish I had that when I came out of college. I did not. <laughs> I had to yeah. figure it out on my own, but 
That's yeah. that's those are the three that. Yeah, Jonathan's knocking yeah. it out. He yeah, I know really he is. is. He's, he's yeah, doing yeah, a great that's job. Right. Well, that's, that's right. awesome. You'd think we planned this and we really didn't, but you told me something about it. You're you gonna get me in trouble because the other one's the gonna say, ones, "Stan, yeah, why are, you didn't mention me?" Well, we'll bring you back. We'll do another episode. We'll bring you back and have you. But uh, you gave me one that's working with uh, mainly with uh, younger people. You gave me one that's working with older people, and then someone's working with colleges. Yep. So you you got three organizations that are working all across the, that's right. the age lines. Um, so what? So just what do you think are some of the factors? Um, I, you know, this is a hard question, but what are some of the factors that you see that shape the lives, the everyday life of someone who we would term at Commonwealth economically vulnerable? And what we mean by that is they're living their lives, they're working, they're going a long way, but just one little blip can move the needle in one way or the other, and it can really disrupt a life that's well, well, that's, that's going fairly well. What, what do you see as factors that shape those? Yep. Um, I think one of the thing is um, having access to basic needs. Um, I know we, when we talk about um, serving underserved communities, we always tend to look at the big picture, um, but don't get to don't get into the weeds of um, um, why people are in the situation and environment or the factors that that led them to that. Um, so I think addressing a lot of our basic needs uh, issues and concerns, and not just trying to put someone in a home. But how do you provide other resources to that individual that that way they can keep or maintain their home? Right. Um, so putting someone in the home is one thing, but they will have to worry about gas bill. They have to worry about um, water. They have to worry about cutting the grass, the simple things that we take for granted. Right. So not only giving them what they need to be empowered, but also providing them that wraparound services, the resources that they need to be able to to still survive even with that. Right. And you and I have talked about this a whole lot over coffee yeah. that, that, you know, <laughs> that uh, affordable housing is, is an important issue, but the big issue for, for, for me is affordability because everything becomes right. unaffordable sometimes in Charlotte. Everything right. grows, rents grow, everything grows, childcare, right. so many things that impact affordability. That's so right. you're right. Basic needs and those, those type things. What else? What does, does, do you think that, uh, Charlotte is—is is it in your opinion that Charlotte is an easy place to find and keep work if you're in a in a lower income population? Uh, well, if if you being that specific, I'll say no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and 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 just because if you look at some of the jobs and some of the opportunities that come to Charlotte, um, the the mayor will make a big announcement, or the state, even at the state level, they'll say this X company is coming to Charlotte and they're going to have fourteen hundred jobs. But when you go and peel the onion back, you look at those 1,400 jobs, those are highly skilled jobs where mm -hmm. someone need a degree yeah. or those are highly skilled job where you need some type of certification. Um, the, 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 the families and our brothers and sisters that are in underserved communities don't have the access to go get the highly skilled train, training that they right. need to access that job. Right. So from, a, from an optic standpoint, it looks good to say you got 1,400 jobs coming to, to Charlotte and it's beautiful. But when you peel it back, when you take, when you move, remove the optics, those jobs are not for the folks that it should be serving, and those folks are quickly being displaced because the folks that are getting the jobs are not trying to take over where these families are, where these families been their whole life. Right, housing becomes an issue. Yeah. Even if even if someone can get them one of those jobs, transportation, transportation becomes a, a huge issue yep. in Charlotte. And I know and, we deal with that all the time. But. Yeah, transportation is huge, and I will tell you, um, I live by the Whitewater Center and. It's sometimes uh, there have been times when I have considered maybe I should take the bus and just see and just get that experience. Right. right? 
Um, but there's no bus line <laughs> by my house. Right. Um, yeah. and, and I'll have to walk a long distance to get on the bus yeah. and then have to take multiple buses to get down to inner city to uptown where my where my office is. Um, so access to transportation is another big thing. So that goes back to what I shared earlier about those factors. You know, you can give someone you can provide something for someone, but if you don't give them those basic needs and those wraparound services, you right. really are doing these families, these folks a disservice, in my right. opinion. And, and, you know, that's one of the things I know I've talked to you about is that, you know, in, when the pandemic hit in 2020, one of the things that I was well on the record saying was that what Commonwealth Charlotte does, which is one-to-one counseling, we could not do if we were not face-to-face. Correct. I felt very strongly that that was the case, and I have had to go back on my word and say, you know what, I was wrong, <laughs> because we uh, ended up having to go to virtual counseling. But what we learned and what I should have realized uh, earlier on, but you just sometimes need the lesson to learn it is that by eliminating transportation, by eliminating the client's need to find childcare or take time off work and, and bringing them closer to where they are to say, hey, I can talk to you. We can do this counseling session by phone tonight yeah. when you get off work. It changed the whole landscape of who we could serve. And it made it so, so much more, so much easier for the clients that we work with. And that client probably fell whole. Like, you know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have to commute. I don't have to worry about the headache of all of that. I can really just talk on the phone and still get everything that and I, I can need. Still that's, get, that's huge. Yeah. That's and you huge. do miss some of that face to face, but I yeah. think the trade off is, I think the trade off is worth it. So uh, yeah. yeah, you, you, you do that. Hey, before we run out of time, tell me a little bit about Greenlight Fund. You know, you sure. said that I gave you a great introduction, <laughs> so maybe I should just read that again then we can save time. There you no, go. No, no tell, tell me about what you're doing there. Sure. Um, so Greenlight, um, in, in my opinion, they say, um, great organization that's truly making systematic change in this community. Um, so essentially, just you, you said it very best, but just kind of sum up what we do. Um, we work with the community to identify critical needs areas. So the community will tell us um, we have uh, different focus groups. We have consultants go out and work with the community. Community will give us a list of all the things that that's happening in the community. Uh, we have an advisory board that represent that too. The advisory board kind of narrow our focus down. So for example, the advisory board, the community may have a whole list of different things that they think um, our critical needs and the advisory board through research, through evidence will say, okay, maybe we should focus based on where Charlotte landscape is. We should focus on these three or four areas, mental health, financial stability, workforce, housing, whatever the case is. Um, so it's my job once the advisory board have narrowed down what we need to focus on to go out um, into our database, essentially looking at evidence-based model from across the country that are working in other parts of this, of this country and vetting out those organizations um, to, to identify if they have the foundation and the capacity to expand and if their program will be a good fit in our ecosystem. Um, so we go out, we do a full year due diligence on these organizations. We're looking at the finances. We're looking at their um, four-year projected budget because we fund them for four years. We're looking at key partners. We're looking at if they have the capacity to expand and what that will look like in Charlotte. Um, and then they go through a series of different um, check and balances. And then the final phase of, of, of this process, the organizations are invited. We'll narrow our search down to maybe three or four organizations. And those three or four organizations are invited to come to Charlotte to present in front of our advisory board. And our advisory board take a major role in, in helping us in recommending based on the needs, based on everything, all the research, all the factors that's within, um, which one of the 
two or three, four organizations they think would be a good fit from an implementation standpoint in our ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And we fund that organization um, over four years. So we help them hire their local leader. We help them build their board. We get them connected to a lot of our resources, but also we help them build a social capital through the network that we have here in Charlotte. Yeah, I love that model because uh, so many times I think that what we end up doing is we find some organization that's doing good work and we want to uh, do the same work. Mm-hmm. And so we end up with two or three organizations trying to do the same thing. But Correct. what you're doing is you're trying to find a niche, Correct. something that's unfilled. And, and we are intentional not duplicating that too. So we, we want to make sure that yeah. whatever we bring, it's not a yeah. duplication in that community, yeah. um, but more so of a um, added resource. Right. Um, and, so. and and I also love the fact that you um, fund for multi-years. Correct. Uh, As a leader of a nonprofit, I can tell you, and you've worked in it before as well in that capacity. I mean, you can uh, fund, no funding is, uh, uh, is, is bad. You know, I Mm -hmm. I love all funding, but I I really do like funding when I'm able to look at a multi-year because it enables me to make plans that I couldn't make otherwise. Correct. So we can think through, hey, we want to, that's in essence how Generation 2080, our wealth Mm -hmm. building program started. We had one funder who said, I'm going to make a five-year commitment to you. And that's great. We could have rolled that right into our operational budget and, and gone on doing what we're doing we were doing, but we were able to look at that and say, hey, let's try this idea that we had because we know that we can fund this over the course of the next five years. And that's how that program got started. And we now have over 200 people in wow. our wealth building program. That's, so that's amazing. That's great that, that, <laughs> that you all are doing that. So yeah. I, I thank you uh, for that work as well. Thank um, you. So, um, one last question, and this is uh, this is this is a tough question, and it's we've been talking all around it, but it's I think it's um, I think it's worth talking about. Um, is it unrealistic to believe that that we can make major changes in the lives of Charlotte's lowest income residents? <laughs> That's a hard question. It's a hard <laughs> it's question. It's one of those questions where you want to be careful because you want to be politically correct, but you also want to say that's the truth. Why, that's that's why I gave it to you, because I know that you are filterless when it comes to these yeah. things. Um, well, I would say, um, just in my opinion, I don't think it's unrealistic, but I think we have to be more intentional. Um, I think we need to cut the crap. I'm trying to always just throw money at issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, money, money is a resource to me. It's a tool. Um, but money is not the end or be all. So we need to be very intentional about if we really want systematic change, we have to do at the policy level. We have to start there. Mm -hmm. If you start breaking down policies and start holding elected officials accountable or those that are in position of power accountable, then that will naturally come down to what we are trying to do in our communities. So I think that's where it starts. I think policies need to be changed or um, rewritten <laughs> because in some cases some things don't need to be changed, but we need to put an amendment in some of those in some of those policies. So I don't think it's unrealistic, but we yeah. just have to be intentional. Or we have to hold the right people accountable. We do, and I think the other piece of that too is just uh, building a more broad understanding of some of the realities that people mm-hmm. face. Because I don't think people know that it's no it's no fault of their own. They just don't understand it. I one of the questions that I love to ask people is. Uh, how much do you think a predatory lender, like a payday lender or a title loan lender, how much interest rate do you think that they can charge? And typically someone will say to me, boy, it's probably pretty high. What, mm-hmm. 25, 30 percent? 
That's and when high. I say it's 300%. Wow. I didn't even it. know that. You didn't know that? All the coffee wow. we've drank, you, you didn't know that? But yeah, I feel like I heard you say that before. Wow. Yeah, 300%. So you can borrow $600 to because you're, you've had an income gap to try to pay your rent, and you end up paying back $2,200. And uh, so the understanding uh, at levels of that, so that you just realize what goes on for someone who yeah. works in a, in a low-income environment. Uh, if we can understand that better, then we have a better chance of driving policy. That's true. And, I agree and, to that. And policy does need to change. I agree um, to that. So what kind of tea am I going to get next time when we go to the tea shop? <laughs> Tell me, what's, what's your specialty? I, can't, um, I, don't even I do a lot of lemon ginger, lemon uh, but ginger? the last, the last um, couple of weeks I've been trying to switch it up. I'm trying to try other things. I had a cranberry something uh, last week. So every week I try something different. Nice. So I tell you what we ought to do for our all of our 11 listeners. We should uh, <laughs> we should give our tea shop a plug. Let's do that. Do um, Pauline's Tea. Yeah. Um, I can't think of the address right now, but if you if you Google Pauline's Tea in Charlotte, yeah. um, you will see it. Miss Sherry Waters is amazing. Um, when you yeah. walk into the tea bar, I mean, the, the ambiance in there just really kind of suck you in. It's not where you go to go work. No. <laughs> Even though I break the rules you do all break the time. The rules all the time. It's where you go to have conversations. You yeah. unplug. She intentionally do not have Wi Fi. Yeah. So you get in there. Um, you better have a hot spot. Yeah. But it's really for you to go enjoy the ambiance and unplug from the world that we're in. Yeah. So let's meet there soon, my friend. Absolutely. We'd hey, love to. Thank you for coming thank to be my guest. Me. I appreciate this. Yeah. This is really fun. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> we'll see each other soon. Yes, sir. You take thank care, you. buddy. Yes, sir. Okay. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about Commonwealth Charlotte and the services we provide, see our website at commonwealthcharlotte.org or email info at commonwealthcharlotte.org and someone will be in touch with you. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Queen City Podcast Network.com.